Good morning. Uh, in a few minutes, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and so I'll, um, I'll say it now. If you do not have one of these uh, emblems, uh, someone will be able to bring them to you, but raise your hand so they know who to bring it to. Um, I know th- it's a little different this morning. I, I sincerely hope that it's not distracting in the way that, in the way that we're, we're setting things up. Um, but I want uh, our minds to be focused uh, on the Lord's Supper this morning. And as I was thinking about it, um, it's kind of nice to have, I guess, an office that's not too far away from Bob's. I'm, I'm, I'm working on the sermon and I'm like, you know what? It would be kind of strange to be talking about the Lord's Supper and how we ought to approach the Lord's Supper after we've already taken uh, the Lord's Supper. And I went over there and asked him uh, if this would be good. And, and you know, uh, him and, and others uh, approved this uh, However, I do want us to focus our attention on the Lord's Supper. Um, This is an act that is instituted by Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Something that the early disciples uh, observed weekly and were continually devoting themselves to, uh, according to Acts 2 and verse 42. And, you know, those who have been going to church for a long time, uh, specifically this church or or perhaps even other churches who participate or or partake of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, you're quite familiar with what we're about to do, right? You're quite familiar with the fact that we're going to eat some bread, we're going to drink some some grape juice, and and we'll talk about some things and and then go on doing other things. You're, You're pretty familiar with this. But I'd like us to think at least for a minute about what it is that we're about to do. And maybe how non-Christians view what we're about to do. Specifically, non-Christians who are maybe skeptical of the Bible, or non-Christians who, uh, who really have no idea what the Bible says. Have you ever stopped to think about what it is that we're doing uh, in, this, in taking the Lord's Supper? I mean, think about it. Once a week, we take what barely amounts to a bite of bread. We, take, we, we wash it down with just a sip of grape juice which are said to represent the body and blood of a crucified criminal 2,000 years ago. Oh, and we only do that because this crucified criminal told his small band of followers to do it. They do it, and so we follow in what they do. I mean, that's a pretty strange thing that we participate in. I mean, it's probably one of the most uh, ritualistic things we do, probably one of the most uh, religious-appearing things that we do. Um, I think the rest of the world lumps this this taking of the Lord's Supper in with other kind of strange traditions that other religious bodies do. But in doing this, Paul says in his discussion of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about this act, uh, uh, it proclaims the Lord's death. So those who are doing this are proclaiming the Lord's death to ourselves, uh, to each other, and really anyone else who sees or hears us in participating in this, in this strange act. And earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions uh, what, what the Lord's death was to certain people. To Gentiles, the Lord's death was, was foolishness. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. So in observing the Lord's Supper, what we're proclaiming to some is foolishness. I think that's uh, part of that, that strange tradition that we were uh, mentioning before, worshiping this crucified criminal. And to others, we're proclaiming a stumbling block, something that contradicts our presuppositions in the world, something that contradicts uh, things that we often look at and things along those lines. That's what we're proclaiming. But despite how ridiculous this tradition might seem to some, it seemed to be of extreme importance to the Holy Spirit. 
Um, Because in proclaiming the Lord's death, I think we are proclaiming much more than just the death of of a crucified criminal. I hope you all know that. We're proclaiming that this wasn't an accident that this person died. Also, it wasn't just a person that died, but it was the promised Messiah that died. That God had a plan for this to happen. And so in some ways, we're proclaiming an aspect of God in proclaiming the Lord's death. I believe in some ways we are proclaiming God to the world in what we're doing. Now I want to explore that idea. Because this idea of proclaiming God is really nothing new to the Bible, uh, at at least where we are in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, It's a concept that God has been mindful of really since He brought the people out of Egypt, out of of slavery in Egypt. Um, This idea of proclaiming God's name, we first see it in Exodus chapter 6, where God is the one in control of His name. uh, Exodus 6 and verse 7, God tells Moses that you shall know that I am the Lord your God. When he delivers them out of bondage. So this, this, this act of taking the people out of slavery from Egypt was going to be a proclamation to God's people that he was the Lord. But then what's interesting is the flip side of that act is he would also make himself known to the Egyptians in the same act. Exodus 7 verses 4 through 5. He says in verse 4, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt uh, by great judgments. Then it's verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So God is proclaiming His name, making His name known to both His people and the people uh, of of other nations. And and the ripple effect of, of, of this act is pretty great, right? Because as God's people are leaving Egypt, some Egyptians actually go with them. And then later on, when you get to Joshua 2, Rahab, this Canaanite woman, she's heard of God. The people of Canaan, they've heard of God, specifically through this act. God was controlling how His name was going to be known. And it's known through this act, delivering His people. But later, in Exodus, God shares this responsibility of making His name known. Which actually is pretty similar uh, to what we've already seen at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1-11, through God is the author of all good things. God is the one who gives about blessings. But then you get to Genesis 12, and now He's almost sharing that responsibility with Abraham. That through Abraham, Abraham was going to bring blessing to other people. I think we see something similar here when you get to Mount Sinai. When Exodus chapter 19, uh, verses 4 through 6, we looked at this uh, a, few, a few weeks ago. God is establishing His covenant with His people, and He distinguishes them in verse 6 as being a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What's a priest? What does a priest do? Well, uh, a priest is a mediator of some kind, right? So, at at least for the people of God, the priest was going to be that mediator between the people and God. He was going to serve in that capacity. But, as far as this metaphor is concerned, the whole nation is being considered priests. They're a kingdom of priests. So, I think it it would imply that what is the nation doing but being a mediator between God and the rest of the world? That the rest of the world would know who God is through this great nation. And that idea continues even in Exodus chapter 20, uh, when you get into the Ten Commandments. right? Uh, God establishes that He is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, He says in verse 1 in Exodus 20. 
And because of that, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols of me or anything else. But then he says in verse 7, he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which is to say, you shall not carry my name. You shall not take my name along with you wherever you go. You shall not represent me. You shall not wear my name in vain. You're going to do this in such a way that is representing who God truly is. Each person of Israel was to serve as a representative, but they were to do it not in some vain way, but with purpose, with intent. Then as God is, is, is preparing His people to go into the promised land, Moses is speaking to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. It, it's pretty interesting uh, what Moses says, what God says through Moses uh, in this, as, as far as how the people were going to represent him to the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, start with me. The, the larger context starts in verse 1, but we're going to start in verse 5. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5, he says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Other versions read, the sight of the nations who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near, uh, uh, God so near to it as, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? In Deuteronomy 4, it would seem that in keeping God's commandments that other nations would be able to see three different things. They would be able to, be, they would be able to see that God's people are wise. Not because they're, they're just inherently wiser than other people, but they are wise because of the way that they follow these words. They would see that, uh, that God's word is righteous. And then right in the middle there, they would also see the relationship that they have with their God. Other nations didn't have that kind of relationship with their gods, but this nation would. But you see how that is made known. It's made known in the way that they follow God's word. The ways in which they follow God's word was going to proclaim to other nations how wise God was, how righteous God was, and how intimate he loved his people. So this is how God's people were to proclaim the Lord to the nations, and in doing so, bring blessing to those nations. And though there are examples of, of Israel doing well in that, there are certainly more of them not doing well. We had a sermon not too long ago about how pagans uh, uh, were better representations of God than God's own prophet in Jonah. Um, but then there's an interesting uh, series in, 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 Ex or, excuse me, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 20 where Ezekiel recounts three different instances of the story of Israel. He says uh, that God brought them out of Egypt, but they didn't get rid of all their Egyptian gods. God is bringing them to the promised land, but along the way they're just complaining. And God eventually brings them to the promised land, but they're not careful to follow God's law. Well, what's interesting is that in each instance, it says that God pours out His wrath but then shows them compassion by upholding his side of the covenant. And the text makes specific mention in each time. He says uh, both about his wrath and his compassion. He says that God does this for his name's sake. 
so that his name would not be profaned among the nations. God is concerned about the way that his name is seen by other people, by other people that don't know him. And Israel was failing in proclaiming his name. And so God takes control of this in this instance. And then another time, there'd be several others that we could look at, but one that I want to look at in a little bit more detail is in Malachi chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to spend some time there this morning. The text will be on the screen, but I think there's a benefit of having it open uh, in front of you as well. We see another time in Malachi chapter 1. And, and again, I want to spend a little bit more time here and make the connection to 1 Corinthians 11 in the Lord's Supper. Malachi is pro- prophesying after Israel has returned from exile. And so this is supposed to be the people who have learned their lesson, right? It's supposed to be the people who are going to follow God unlike their fathers. But the book of Malachi uh, paints a totally different picture. Uh, it begins with this hypothetical, though very realistic, conversation between God and the people. God begins his, this conversation, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And then notice the people's response. How have you loved us? That's a pretty bold response from the people. God, how have you loved us? And there's many different places that God could have gone to to explain his love to them. But he brings it back to the beginning. Hey, there were two nations in in Rebekah's womb. I chose Jacob. He goes back to, uh, uh, how have you loved it? Was it was not uh, Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. And then he goes into detail about how Esau, the Edomites, they, they, they brought about, dis- or, or destruction was brought on them because of their wickedness. And that was supposed to be a proclamation of God's love uh, for, for uh, God's people. It says in verse 5, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So in the way that God has kept his promise with Jacob, that's a sign of how I've loved you. And the way that God has, 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 has brought about destruction on those who are wicked, that is a sign that I have loved you. And this should be known among the nations. But they weren't magnifying God. Certainly not among the nations. They weren't honoring him. It says in verse 6 that they know how to honor their earthly fathers. They know how to honor their uh, earthly masters. And yet their heavenly one, they do not honor. And God says that, you have, uh, that they have despised His name. Which is to say they thought very little of God. They didn't think much of God at all in what they were doing. And then again, you see the boldness of the people to ask, Well, how have we despised your name? Elaborate on that, God. How have we despised you? And then God brings it back to the ways in which they have not followed His commands. They have not sacrificed to God as they were supposed to. He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. And then the boldness continues. They respond in saying, well, define defiled. Elaborate a little bit more on that. How, How have we defiled your name? Well, they're sacrifices. It all goes back to what they were giving to God. It's not that they weren't sacrificing. They were, in fact, sacrificing. But they were sacrificing the blind for sacrifice, the lame and the sick. They were were sacrificing what they had stolen from other people. They were sacrificing these blemished animals. And I love the imagery that's brought out in verse 10. They were uselessly kindling fire upon the altar. What they were giving to God was useless. To them. That's how you have defiled the name of God. 
You wouldn't give these things to your political leaders. You wouldn't serve them in this capacity. And yet you are giving me what is defiled. And look in verse 11. It's interesting what God connects this to. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name in a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations. God connects the way that they despise his name and defile his table to the way that God's name is known among the nations. Look at how the people respond in verse 13. My, how tiresome it is. How tiresome it is to just give the worst of what I have. How exhausting it is to give the worst of what I have. And you know what? It seemed pretty exhausting to God to see them giving the worst of what they had. Because he says in verse 10, man, I wish they would just shut the gates of the temple. I wish they would lock it up so that these people wouldn't come and defile my name. And you read in verse 14, But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his own flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal. God says that they are going to be cursed. Remember, curse is destruction in the Bible. Where curses are being brought out, destruction is happening. They're going to be destroyed again, just as, like we saw in Ezekiel 20, though, because my name is to be feared among the nations. He says right there at the end in verse 14. God's people saw a sacred act that represented God's love and compassion as nothing but a tiresome, meaningless tradition. They failed to see or perhaps care uh, that they were proclaiming to the nations that their God was worth less than their fathers, their masters, and their leaders. Y'all see the connection? We don't, we don't sacrifice today. Uh, The book of Hebrews makes that pretty clear that Jesus' sacrifice was greater than even the the blood of unblemished bulls and goats. His sacrifice was done once and for all when he offered up himself, Hebrews 7 and verse 27. We don't sacrifice today. However, we do honor that sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus, in an official capacity in the Lord's Supper every week. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. Go ahead and turn there. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. I want to, I hope to make some parallels between what we've read in Malachi chapter 1 and what we'll read here in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's begin in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17 says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Skip it down to verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So they were gathering together for the Lord's Supper, it would seem, even though he says, you're not really gathering together for the Lord's Supper. But they were getting together and participating in something, just like in Malachi 1, how they were sacrificing. But what was it that they were giving? 
It says they were dividing. Divisions exist among you. It would seem, based on the latter context, it would seem like some people were getting together, they were partaking of something like the Lord's Supper, and then other people were showing up later, and there was nothing for them to eat. That's the division there. There is a division among them. They were deliberately, or, or maybe not deliberately, just kind of not thinking about it, dividing over something like this. Uh, and not only that, but they seem to be combining their, their pagan traditions of before with this tradition. It seems like they're having a party of some kind. I mean, after all, uh, one is hungry, but another is drunk. Uh, do you not have houses to do these types of things? They were not really getting together to partake of the Lord's Supper. And he says in verse 22, Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Some similar language there to what we read in Malachi chapter 1, right? Do you despise the church of God? They thought little of the church. They thought little of one another. They weren't thinking very much of one another. After all, they're divided. One person's here, another person's there. One person's hungry, another is drunk. They're not thinking of their brothers. But I'd like to argue also, if we are not thinking of the brothers, we are not thinking of Christ. Because we make up the body of Christ. If we are not thinking of, uh, if we are despising the church of God, who is it that we are despising? We are thinking little of God. We are thinking little of Christ and the church. But then he corrects these actions by reminding them of the words that he had received from the Lord, words that he's already delivered to them. Uh, and he instructs them and us on, on how to take the Lord's Supper. Read with me, beginning verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the, in, in the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So in this explanation... He discusses the emblems, right? the bread and the cup, which are important. Not, they're not important just because of what they are, but what they signify. right? They represent the body of Christ, which was given for you. The blood of Jesus, which is this new covenant. And then he emphasizes the attitude, it seems, with which they are uh, to take this supper. I believe this is the main issue that he is, that he is addressing. He says in verse 27 that we ought not to take it in an unworthy manner. Verse 28, that we ought to examine ourselves, look at ourselves, examine ourselves. Verse 29, and I believe uh, as a summary statement, he says that we judge the body rightly. And if we don't, if we do not do that correctly, then he says that we shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Which is to say... All these things that you are eating and drinking of, these things that represent the body and blood of Christ, it will be as if you are the one who put him on that cross. You are the one who are guilt, who's guilty over that particular sin. 
And he says that we, uh, we will eat and drink judgment to ourselves. He who does this incorrectly, eat and drink judgment to himself. And then right in the middle of the instruction, Paul summarizes what it is that we are doing when we take the Lord's Supper. And he says, every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, that we are proclaiming the Lord's death. I want to come back to that idea, proclaiming the Lord's death. What is the Lord's death? Is it just the death of a crucified criminal? Is it really just foolishness to the world? Should it be viewed as foolishness to us even? Well, I'd argue no. The Lord's death represents much more than just a death, but it represents a deliverance of God's people. We, we looked at this before. God's name was wrapped up in the way that He delivered God's people from Egypt, right? That's what they were supposed to remember. He made Himself known through delivering Egypt. Each law is given. And at the end of that law it says, For I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Whenever He declares His love for the people, the proof that He gives is, I delivered you out of Egypt, right? God's name would be known among the nations through this act, through this deliverance of His people. God's name would be known through the deliverance of the people that are His. Again, representing that intimate relationship that He has, the righteous judgment that He gives, the compassion that He shows. God's people would partake of the Passover every year, and they would remember this particular event. They would eat bread, they would drink fruit of the vine to remember God's deliverance. Well, what is it that we are remembering in partaking of the Lord's Supper? But a new deliverance that we have through the blood of Jesus. A deliverance found only through Jesus. What we are proclaiming to the world is how God loves us. And God loves all those who are His. So much so that He is willing to send His Son to deliver these guilty people. So we eat the bread, as we're instructed to do, to remember the body of Jesus that was given for us. The body of Jesus that was given to us. So let us examine how Jesus' body was given to us. Not only did He give up His body in dying on the cross, but He gave up His body in the way that He lived, day after day, constantly denying Himself for our benefit and for our example. When we eat of the bread, remember His body and consider that it was for you that He died. And we drink of the cup to remember the new covenant that we have in His blood. Again, after God delivered the people from Egypt, uh, God, through Moses, establishes His covenant. He gives them the law. But was it just a set of rules? Was it just a set of laws? No, remember, we read in Deuteronomy 4 that these... These laws would represent the intimate relationship that He has with His people. And so we are being brought into this new covenant. Let us examine that new covenant, what it is that we have through Jesus. Through Jesus, uh, those who, are who have been washed through His blood and baptism have been brought into this new covenant. This law that is now written on our hearts, this law that is shaped through the sacrificial love of Jesus. That's what we've been brought into. This intimate relationship with the one who came down from heaven and gave himself up for us. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death to ourselves, to everyone else in this room, and to anybody else who hears or sees what we're doing. And we are declaring 
to the world that Jesus gave up His body in order to restore us to a healthy relationship with God through the new covenant of His blood. But before we take the Lord's Supper, I think it's important for us to go back and ask the similar questions as to what they asked in Malachi chapter 1. We can ask the question, how have we despised you, God? How have we despised the death of Jesus? Well, figuratively speaking, are we giving the worst of what we have in partaking of this Lord's Supper? Are we giving the worst of what we have daily? I mean, I, I don't just mean like, are you dressed up well this morning? Did you sing out this morning? Are you taking notes? All of those things, good things. But you can do all of those things and your heart still be far from God and your mind far from what Jesus has done on the cross. I believe your mind is giving into the flesh by maybe dwelling on the game yesterday uh, or thinking about what you're doing after lunch or, or for lunch after church or maybe worrying about all the things you got to do around the house, all the things you got to do at work uh, this afternoon or on Monday, the things that you're anticipating when you are not focused on what Jesus has done. In that way, we quite literally think little of Jesus and His sacrifice and despise it. Well, we can ask the question, how have we defiled you, God? How have we defiled the Lord's table, to use the language of Malachi 1? Well, I believe we defile the Lord's table if we partake of it in a way that is not authorized, right? But as I observe our habits here in the last few months, it, I believe we are taking it in a, in, a, in a similar pattern to what we see. I don't think that's necessarily the issue. However, we defile the Lord's table by not truly reflecting on what these emblems represent. By not truly reflecting on the body of Jesus and the blood. We defile the Lord's table by, by going on autopilot when this portion of the worship comes. You realize you're not here to listen to me or Bob talk. It, it, I hope it's a benefit at times, but we are here to honor God. And we are here to think about Jesus and the sacrifice that He has given. But do you go on autopilot during this portion of the worship when we partake of the bread and of the blood? I believe we despise the Lord's table when we do that. And when our approach is this, then the attitude of God's people in Malachi chapter 1 is inevitable. Eventually, we will say out loud or at least subconsciously think to ourselves, my, how tiresome it is. How tiresome it is to do this every single Sunday. I mean, I've been doing this for I don't know how many years. Eventually, that's the conclusion you're going to come to, whether you're willing to admit it or not, how tiresome it is. And if this is our approach to the Lord's Supper, and really just to uh, our service to God in general, then I'm convinced that God feels the same way as He did for those in Malachi's day. Oh, that, they would, or that, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates. I wish they just locked the doors to the church so that people wouldn't defile the Lord's death in the way that they partake of the Lord's Supper. Let that be said about none of us. Not us as a collective body, but each individual as well. This morning, let us ask the question, but in a genuine way, the first question that they ask, which is, how have you loved us, God? Let us consider how God has loved us and reflect on the answer that we find in this portion of 1 Corinthians 11. Let us reflect on the Lord's table. Let us reflect on the bread, which represents the body of Jesus 
that He willingly gave up for us. Let us reflect on the blood that He shed so that we could be ushered into a relationship with God, this new covenant. And let us proclaim to ourselves, to everyone in this building, and to anybody else who hears this, the love that we find through the Lord's death. Seneca is going to lead us in prayer as we partake of the Lord's Supper.